Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist and a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild and USSF and a bunch of other stuff. This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I teach for exercise, phys, and nutrition, and run my own business and like lifting heavy stuff. Phil is with us today with the flu, everybody, so we got to give the man some props. <laughs> yeah. He's all hopped it's up the, on NyQuil or I'm all, NyQuil yeah, or whatever so if I'm, now. If I start, start snoring, then it's it's the NyQuil I took four <laughs> hours ago, four in the morning. So, yeah, that's good times. It's that, it is the season, I suppose. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, the show it's must go on squat here. day, man. It's squat day today, so. Uh-oh. I can't squat with this, man. It'd be messy. I was gonna say, oh. holy Christ, you're not gonna, you're not gonna go squat. <laughs> no, I'm gonna go sleep. <laughs> so, um, let's get to a little bit of news. The first bit I have here, strength and muscle sport news, is a follow up to an email from last week. Uh, John, Mike, and I were trying to come up with some good answers for one of our listeners, Nick about training in cold weather, and I did check in with uh, someone in my network who's an environmental physiologist, and the question was basically he felt like he was much, much slower on, you know, overhead presses and a lot of sort of what he called CNS-dependent, you know, central nervous system-dependent lifts, Uh, and he said when he tries to do any type of um, conditioning work, he feels like he's 30% poorer you know when he's out there in his garage training and um that sort of thing because it's very cold and he said instead of getting a heater you know what do you guys know about this so um we offered a study about icing muscle bellies and how that might actually help in some ways but then uh john mike was talking about cold hands um they did some research where bench press strength went down when guys had cold hands and so as a strong man you know you could you're on the elements, sort of, and, you know, how does this all pan out? So there's this is actually from an uh, out-of-print book, but there are two bits in here about cold and lifting. And the first one, I, I literally took a picture of this with my cell phone, but the first one is on muscular endurance, uh, and it says um, basically, you know, your ability to sustain continuous muscular contractions – actually is helped by slight cooling and that's what we were talking about with the icing the muscle bellies thing when you're doing hot or higher rep kinds of training it says with slight cooling muscle fatigue develops at a slower rate and there's a reference here and by the way some of the references on this um, textbook page are from the journal of arctic medicine so Hmm. as far as maximal muscular strength and peak muscle power uh, it actually says these are the more susceptible types of exercise to cold, unfortunately. It says the loss of performance in these events amounted to 4 to 5% per degree Celsius. So wow. um, it's going to rack up against you pretty fast. And what I really wanted to know uh, when I asked her was what's the mechanism? 
you know, is this just like a physical change in nerve conduction velocity or tissue viscosity or – and it says um, there's an increase in the time it takes for muscle fibers to reach maximal tension in the cold. This may involve a slower rate at which actin and myosin cross bridges. Of course, those little microfilaments in muscle can attach and reattach and move along and make the muscle shorten. Again, we're looking literally down like on the molecular level here. But second, the viscosity of the fluid inside the muscle fibers may increase when the muscle is cooled, increasing resistance to movement of the cross bridges, again, of actin and myosin. Uh, and third, it's known that the rate of chemical reactions slows when it's cold, and you know that reduction in enzyme activity would make less ATP, you know, less cell energy. So it would also, you know, be harder from an energetic point of view. So uh, there it is, Journal of Arctic Medicine, and again, an out of print um, environmental physiology book. Uh, I don't know. I guess the practical message from that is. Don't let yourself get that cold. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, put in a heater, even if it's a space heater blowing on you or something. I don't know. Unless you're looking to like lose fat, because isn't there all those studies that the people in the cold like burn four times as many calories as normal? Like right. The Arctic people and things like that. Exactly. We we did mention that last week. Unfortunately, that's about all we had for Nick <laughs> as yeah. far as an explanation that you know you might want to eat more. I mean, some people yeah. toy around with thermogenics to try to stay warm. I mean those. Environmental physiologists even feed people mm-hmm. thermogenic supplements to try to keep up your core temperature and and all that. But yeah, some of those guys they they lose huge amounts of weight even though they're you know they're trying to eat like five thousand calories a day. But when it's cold, yeah. exercising in the cold drain you right down. Yeah, I have only one other thing on there that I've been following for years that pops up like every couple of years. I don't know if you guys seen it, but it's supposedly a thing that they call the glove. And it's basically this like cold thing you put your hand on and they put it under vacuum. So the theory is it's supposed to cool your blood and it's supposed to you know increase the circulation of that. And supposedly it's supposed to help during you know interset recovery from uh, muscular work. And I first saw this like probably like almost like eight or ten years ago. And then every couple of years, it just seems to pop up. There was an article on it in Wired Magazine about four years ago. And I just looked again. There's one from um, some article from supposedly Stanford researchers in August of 2012. Looks like the company had a press release um, on it. But it every time it's just fascinating to me because every time it shows up, it says that, you know, cooling the muscle is better, right? But then they report all these amazing results and then it just disappears for weeks (laughs) and years on end and i keep waiting for this thing to you know show up in some commercial fashion and it just never seems to happen so i don't yeah and the last press release here the not that it's bad but the two researchers were the people it sounds like working for the company that says they do have personal financial interest in the company developing it yeah, it doesn't automatically make that it's bad, yeah. but it's, uh, I don't know. So it makes you wonder if we really want to know what's really going on. And I highly doubt it's just one specific thing, right, that's going to mm. govern fatigue in a massive way. So. Yeah, I get the impression that if you're trying to get more reps or, you know, it's a more of a high rep or hot environment, then cooling can be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And, but, you know, like the situation where your whole body is cold and you're outside and, you know, you know how your hands, like 
um, John was talking last week, your hands and feet get cold first. Your body's trying to maintain mm-hmm. its yep. core temperature and, and how that can interfere with the, the more explosive kinds of stuff, which at least this book was saying is more vulnerable. So it looks very like um, goal-specific, application-specific. You know, if you're tr- trying to do explosive lifts, uh, I would try to stay fairly warm. But if you're trying to do higher reps and that sort of stuff, or if it's hot outside, maybe you do tinker around with cooling muscle bellies. I I, I don't know. That seems awful labor-intensive, too. But mm. anyway. Yeah, it's interesting stuff, though. It is. Obviously, uh, temperature matters. It just, you know, application-specific. Uh, the other – actually, I have two other little bits here. One of them is a piece from the Mercola website. Uh, and again, he has a catchy title that's going to stick in your mind, and we'll get more to that later. But it's called Diabetes Ages Your Brain Five Years Faster Than Normal. And he talks about all the epidemic of you know type 2 diabetes in this country. I mean it's rose incredibly over the last 10 years. And uh, – a couple of things struck me that I thought our listeners might be interested in because, of course, pre-diabetes is poor handling of dietary carbohydrates, right? And um, he, he makes some suggestions about how to try to prevent the onset of going from, you know, becoming pre-diabetic, you know, or a poor glucose tolerance kind of person and keeping that from becoming full-blown type 2 diabetes and getting that brain shrinkage and the, the, you know, the mental, the cognition loss and all that. But a couple of uh, more practical things is, well, obviously exercise. He's pointing at some review studies of, with thousands of men and women across a dozen studies, and they were 40% less likely to actually progress into diabetes after a year because of exercise and i've said that for ages right and, and, and this is not just me of course but exercise is medicine in that regard i mean muscle contractions take up blood sugar i mean they take up blood glucose just the act of contracting the muscle uh, and it acts you know in a way that it, powerful as insulin but independent from it and i'm not going to go on about glute 4 transporters and all that but the point being is exercise is a big deal and i think we know that as lifters um but this talks about magnesium uh, deficiencies as well, like relative or subclinical magnesium deficiencies. He points out that w- there was a 2013 study involving pre-diabetics and that most of them had inadequate magnesium intake. Um, it says, let's see, those with the highest magnesium intake reduced their risk for blood sugar and metabolic problems by a whopping 71%. Uh, and there's a couple of references on here. He suggests, although the government usually recommends 300 to you know 420 milligrams per day, uh, up to 700 milligrams per day might be better. And I actually I wrote an article for Flex Magazine 100 years ago about magnesium and about how it helps with sugar, you know, blood sugar and glucose tolerance and and all that sort of thing. And I don't know, they let some idiot respond to that in the following month's issue of Flex. And this guy's like, Lowry's confused, it's not magnesium. I'm I'm just, (laughs) I had five references that say magnesium, you know. And I mean, I don't understand how you can look at literally a little miniature reference list and say that I, you know, it's really manganese, it's not magnesium. And I'm like, you know what, sometimes I don't even want to talk to you (laughs) you people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can't spell. 
I don't know. But so yes, in fact, it is magnesium, and here it is again. Now, I would recommend though that it, people uh, Mercola saying get seven hundred milligrams per day. I would not do that all at once. Um, a lot of people, if you get over four hundred milligrams or so, you're going to get diarrhea. Uh, so, but magnesium is one of those things. A lot of lifters will take like a zinc magnesium to get to sleep and whatnot. And I think blood sugar, uh, balance and being able to handle carbohydrates. Well, that's a nice, uh, side effect of some of the lifters, you know, who, who do supplement magnesium. Cause it is one of those things depends on what study and what database you look at, but it's one of those minerals. We may actually be getting subpar, you know, amounts of, mm-hmm. I think. um, Anyway, so then he goes on about uh, Alzheimer's disease and the link with Alzheimer's and all that sort of thing as well. So, um, yeah, and most of the, the suggestions he's making, of course, to help lower your blood glucose and your fasting insulin, you know, because high insulin all the time, that starts to literally reprogram your cell machinery to be fat storage mode. And uh, so he's saying swap out processed foods. You know, he's very down on fructose, especially. Uh, because of the way you know your liver, of course, turns excess fructose into fat, and it also, as that process unfolds, you can't make cholesterol as well, I guess. And you know the brain needs actually needs some cholesterol. Um, that's another thing I think a lot of lifters are not uh, afraid of cholesterol, whereas a lot of people are trying to you know drive theirs down as much as possible. But there's some very interesting uh, research, not just on brain function, but on muscle growth and how cholesterol may actually help with muscle growth. So he's basically saying stay away from the, you know, refined carbs and focus on monounsaturated fats or even saturated fats in some ways. Um, anyway, so that was the the blood sugar study. I thought the the magnesium stuff was was cool. Uh, I have one more quickly, very unrelated, but listeners might find this funny too. It says um, responses to social and environmental stress are attenuated by strong male bonds, uh, and this is in monkeys, basically, in wild macaques. It says, German researchers have found that male bonding between non-kin macaques promotes lower stress levels. So I went and I looked at the actual study Mm. here. Um, You can even find it in the LA Times, but essentially what they're saying is, because most males are naturally competitive, you know, for females and territory and all this other stuff, um, they found that males that are buddies, and it made me think about like gym buddies in a way, you know, um, they have lower cortisol. They actually followed these monkeys around, and took samples of their poo you know, all day long, and they looked for the metabolites of, of cortisol, you know, of uh, stress hormones. And they had lower stress hormones, and a lot of their behaviors um, were reduced. And it says sometimes it's literally just the physical um, proximity of a friendly male uh, can make one male's cortisol levels go down. So it's not like you've got to mm-hmm. be, you know, <laughs> grooming each other or something. <laughs> anyway. Well, lifters that are bald, that'd be kind of hard. Mm. Yeah, I guess it would. <laughs> it does sort of support the whole training buddy philosophy. I mean, when we used to lift, we had a small group of us, and we would just lift at the same time. We wouldn't be training, like, partners, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. We would just mm-hmm. sort of be there at the same time. And, you know, if you get occasional spot or something, but... You know, the kind of, you know, looking huge, bro, <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> so lower cortisol, so it's... it's uh, yeah, there you go. There you go. Uh, Mike, did you have something? Yeah, I just had uh, one study just came out. Uh, this is in amino acids, December 4th, 2014. 
Uh, title is leucine-enriched protein feeding does not impair exercise-induced free fatty acid availability and lipid oxidation. Uh, beneficial implications for training in carb-restricted states. Uh, this is from, looks like, Impey, I-M-P-E-Y. It's from uh, J.P. Morton's lab. That's a mouthful. And Can you give us the, the yeah, late, I was late say, names? <laughs> in English, if we translate the title... So what they're looking at is if you have some type of protein that's high in leucine, so we know leucine is one of the main drivers for protein synthesis along with essential amino acids. And what they were looking at is that if you give this in a carbohydrate-restricted state, so in general this is going to be done like fasting overnight, and they wanted to see does this impair your body's use of fat uh, both as released and also used as a fuel, so lipid oxidation. And in general, it, it kind of goes a little bit against what I would have thought. So protein is kind of debatable about does it release insulin, does it not, different types of protein are different, and that type of thing. But in practice, you know, a lot of people do, let's say, fasted cardio in the morning. You read stuff online that says, oh, you should just have, you know, branch-chain aminos, and then no, just leucine, and no, just protein, but no, not too much protein because that impairs, you know, your body's use of fat and all this kind of stuff. And in general, what they found with the study, now granted, they only took nine males and they had them cycle for two hours at 70% of VO2 peak. So, you know, may not be directly, you know, related, but you know, some, you know, bodybuilders are doing that type of work pre-contest or whatever. And what they found at the end is that it actually did not seem to impair the free fatty acid availability, so how many fats are running around in your bloodstream, uh, or whole body lipid oxidation, so how well your body is actually being able to use um, fats as a fuel source. Um, so pretty interesting, and granted it's a, you know it's an acute study and you get into the does you know fasted cardio really matter in the long term or not, which I know you guys discussed a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I thought that was actually pretty interesting because, you know, one of those questions, just at least from a, a nerd status, you always kind of wonder about. And so far, when I've looked in the past, there really hasn't been uh, much data either way or anyone that's really looked at it. Yeah. So if you were to pin this down and if you were going to give a recommendation then, um, can yeah, people so – what, what would people do if they want to have a, if, like spare muscle, right, but still burn lots of fat? Yeah, it shows up to, in this case, a specific protein up to 22 grams an hour before exercise um, did not change the amount of fat that was used. Oh, wow, 22. Yeah, yeah so it was, it was nice because it's actually a relative dose. They did you know equate for leucine differences and that type of thing. So it wasn't like, hey, we gave them three grams of protein, and <laughs> it was mm. actually a useful dose. Right. No, good to know. I mean, I used to do a bit of that myself. I, Mike, you know that. Um, yeah, yeah. But I would always, I would try to keep it to 10 grams because I was just afraid, just like you're saying, well, yep. leucine and some of these amino acids are supposed to raise insulin. And I was afraid if I just did dozens of grams, it might actually mm. blunt, you know, some of that fat mobilization and all that. But that's, that's interesting. That's basically, that's a scoop of protein. You know, you can yeah, yeah. So it's a pretty standard dose. You know, so right about you know one one scoop of protein. Yeah, cool. Okay. Well, uh, everyone, we are going to go to break. When we come back, uh, Mike 
had a really good idea, I think, for a topic, which is, um, you know, sticky stories, you know, whether it's science or, or what have you. What makes something sticky and pervasive and, you know, for good and bad in the fitness industry? And we'll explain what we're talking about uh, in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and Protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. I can't stop feeling Some of us don't understand How lucky we are To be living in this Hi listeners, this is Rob Fortress Fortney. I'm here to remind you that as the holiday season approaches and your thoughts turn to giving, we like you to keep Iron Rating in your thoughts. Every week for four years now, it's been our privilege to bring you weekly news, experts, and gym talk. Did you know that now roughly 20,000 brothers and sisters of Iron count on us for these things? Of course, not everyone can afford to be a supporting member or a significant one-time donor. But for those of you willing to pitch in $4 per month or $50 just once, we're about to sweeten the deal. Become a supporting member or major donor, and a limited number of you will receive a gift worth over $20. And we will never forget our existing supporters. Simply email me via ironradio.org, and I'll send you a free seminar from Dr. Lowry on how to significantly and realistically boost your testosterone levels. Help your iron brothers and sisters who cannot pitch in but deserve better internet programming in our sports. And happy holidays. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes... We are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. 
you'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey guys, it's Dr. Mike T. Nelson here on Iron Radio with uh, Dr. Lonnie Lowry and Phil Stevens. And today we're talking about, um, I've been fascinated with what sort of makes certain stories and, you know, kind of were myths sticky versus other ones that are not really sticky, right? So if you've been around, you know, nutrition and fitness and gyms and all that stuff long enough, you kind of tend to hear the same things over and over. So we're just trying to discuss, you know, what are those things you hear over and over? Are they true or not true? And then why do certain things kind of get stuck in our heads. And I've often wondered, is there ways we can take actual good and correct information and make those ideas stickier than the, the crappy ones, mm-hmm. right? So hopefully we can get the better stuff just to inherently, in how we deliver the message, uh, stick better than other ones. Right, yeah. I um just doing a little bit of homework uh and I didn't go much beyond Wikipedia and a little bit of web surfing, to be honest. But uh, I wanted to look at what uh, makes something sticky. You know, what makes it memorable? What makes these notions pervasive? And there was actually a book back in 2007. I think it was Random House Publishers by Chip and Dan Heath. Yeah. Uh, called Made to Stick. And they have a little acronym here of things that make ideas sticky and you know word of mouth passed along uh, and it's sort of a, an abused acronym of, um, success so the s is simple the idea has to be simple or it won't be sticky it won't be remembered um, u is unexpected uh, c is concrete so in other words people have to be able to grasp and try and use the idea in some way uh, the other c is credible uh, the E is emotional, and I think that's sort of important, too, because people forget what you say. You've heard that before, but they don't really forget how you made them feel, you know, so they're the emotional link. And then finally, something Chris Shugart used to say to me all the time was stories. you got to make it a story, and that's sort of linked to the emotional thing. So simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional, and a story. So uh, I, I suppose we could take that as a basis and sort of analyze, you know, some of the things that are just so sticky and pervasive, whether good or bad, you know. Um, so I know some of the the bad ones, they are pervasive and they are sticky with the public because they're sort of simple notions. Unfortunately, they're so simple, they're wrong, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you you had a couple of ones that were irksome to you, Mike, didn't you? Yeah, so, I mean, you could kind of go on and on. But, you know, if I look at, you know, the questions over the years I get and questions I get from students and that kind of stuff, you know, the big one that seems to come up a lot is that, you know, and you've looked at this in research, Lonnie, is, you know, too much will damage your kidneys, you know, and you can find, sadly, actual sources and things that actually do recite this. So when I teach general nutrition, I always ask students, I'm like, if you can find anything that shows actual kidney damage, not increased work, that's from a peer-reviewed research study, not just, you know, something some dude put up on a website or whatever, 
I said, I'll actually give you extra credit, even though giving extra credit is not uh, legal. <laughs> um, no, no one's ever found any yet so far. Uh, um, but students actually get pretty excited. They're like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to go look for this or that. And, you know, so far to date, maybe that'll change. I haven't been able to find any. But you can find all sorts of stuff of, you know, just these sort of, you know, myths that are, you know, portrayed and, you know, some of that, as you guys know, and the listeners know, is from patients who had kidney issues existing already, which is not this, a healthy person. Um, and then a lot of it is derived from if you have increased protein, you will see increased markers of work from the kidneys that they're actually doing. Um, but if you look at markers of actual damage, I haven't, you know, seen any on that. Right. So for those of you, if you missed that, because Mike's connection's a little bit up and down there, but high protein diets, yeah, that's one of those things. It's a simple notion. And I think a lot of actually dietitians, unfortunately, spread that, you know, that, oh, high protein diets, you know, because they make you pee more and they make your kidneys work more. Um, there's something called the Brenner hypothesis so that da- that must mean damage. But we know as lifters, when you put a little bit of overload on a tissue, it usually just hypertrophies and does its job better. It doesn't automatically hurt it, you know. But, yeah, that one would not go away because it was simple. It was unexpected. I don't think it was so concrete, though. You know what I mean? They were they were trying to extrapolate information from, like you said, kidney patients or people with combined diabetes and high blood pressure. And, yeah. um, and then they apply it to lifters, you know. Uh, that's just like the high-protein diets hurt your bone density thing, too, and it's really quite the opposite, you know, so you're right, though. That's a sticky one. People love to share that because I think it's unexpected. Like, oh, high-protein diets, you know, all those fitness people think it's so healthy, but it's really bad, you know. Well, It's almost like they're trying to find a reason to, to prove that it's doing healthy things is overrated, mm-hmm. right? Then you can just go back to your unhealthy lifestyle. Well, that stuff's overrated. Yeah, yeah. those meatheads. <laughs> I actually heard a dietitian once say, those meatheads and their protein. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> Well, okay. I don't know, Phil. I know you're uh, under the weather, brother, but anything that just seems sticky and pervasive in your yeah, the one that always pops out to me, especially recently, because I've getting been getting more and more of them in here, is uh, you know, strength training for kids. It'll do anything short of killing them. It's just <laughs> oh god, I hate it, and I have to deal with it all the time with parents. Um, and usually, it's not the parents. Like a, a person will bring their kid to me. I got a, a little nine-year-old girl now that's coming in, a new one. And it's not their parents. It's like their parents' friends. And they're like, <laughs> give me something I can throw back at them. And it's like, if you look, there's like one study done years yeah. ago that was poor that, that just stuck. And there's hundreds of studies that says, hey, it's great. You know, it helps with their bone density. It helps with their balance. It helps with their self-esteem. It helps, you know, but somehow this one study stuck telling people that you know oh they're going to damage their growth plates it's just horrible for them you know and it's i mean but these same people have no problem throwing their kids into football baseball basketball you know all these other contact sports and it's like come on man right abusive almost sports you know yeah Yeah. and i don't know how it stuck so hard but it it's just i mean a lot of these things that stick in my mind it's like follow the money how much did it get thrown out there by media is usually what somehow it got a large voice from doctors and media and then it just stuck whereas the other stuff didn't just i guess maybe on that one it comes down to the emotional thing nobody wants their kid to be hurt you know Mm -hmm. so the one study that says it'll kill them you know stuck in everybody's head 
So yeah, under the acronym, I would even add add repeatability, right? Or how yeah. often you hear it. Yeah, I mean, you can hear the wrong facts a thousand times. Everyone mm-hmm. knows it's still wrong, but it, it it just seems like in our brain, the more we hear something, we almost unconsciously think that it's true. Yeah, even though if you ask people, they know that well, that's not true. Yeah. It, it just seems like the more you hear things all the time, they just get sort of stuck in there and we start to think, well, maybe there is something mm-hmm. to that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've actually mentioned that before with even anabolic steroids. You know, um, I gave a talk recently on campus and I, when I was in grad school, I would always ask people, you know, steroids, good or bad, you know, and throw out some really inflammatory, unexpected kinds of statements. And universally just bad you know performance enhancing drugs bad bad testosterone bad steroids bad and then i'd say what's what's your knowledge base you know based on you know what's Mm -hmm. your source have you considered the source so let's talk about that and i try not to be uh too confrontational but just where do you get it oh well i just know and it's like you said mike they just heard this again (laughs) and again from the media word of mouth and then i would actually i'd let them talk for a while and basically paint themselves into a corner (laughs) and then i would plop down i had a stack of papers it's still in my garage in a box it was literally as high (laughs) as my knees about how you know a lot like the hdl suppression is it's particular to only certain meds and how it bounces Mm -hmm. back you know uh, testicular atrophy bounces back i mean i'm not trying to say all these things are good far from it but the point is I'm trying to say you've got to consider the source of information. And like you say, they just hear it so many times. You're right. I think I think repeatability should be part of that success acronym, maybe successor, you know, because yeah, there you, go. you can't. It's so hard to untrain these notions in people. You know, mm-hmm. they just come to believe them. Maybe that's, I think, the problem. Instead of a conclusion, because conclusions can be changed with new evidence, it becomes a belief. And it's really hard to change someone who believes because now they have faith, and that means they're going to mm-hmm. resist changing their belief. You know, yeah, and that's an yeah. unlearning process, right? It's like if you're to you go to Phil and you said, "Yeah, I've been practicing snatches for years horribly." Mm-hmm. You're not going to unlearn that process in two days, even with yeah. like the best coaching in the world. Yeah. Right? So it seems like we get these things stuck in our brain, and it's literally a unlearning process to get them changed you know and that's a it's a slow process yeah you know yeah much harder than starting with a blank state slate yep oh yeah yeah unfortunately even at nine years old you know the the little girl you're working with you're going to try to teach her how good some of this stuff is and you've even got to erase some of what's already on her slate Mm -hmm. you know no honey it's not going to hurt you you know yeah um phil you said something that struck me you said you know money when money Mm -hmm. and publicity and stuff is involved uh one of the things in the fitness and and bodybuilding world that was a single study that just wouldn't go away was that italian paper from uh isadorian colleagues that arginine and ornithine will cause a growth hormone boost yeah (laughs) and here it is like 30 years later and they're still selling the stuff arginine and you know whatnot for as a gh booster and mm-hmm. and you know or even if they're selling it as an no you know vasodilator kind of thing now the bottom line is nobody got huge on it in the 80s nobody's getting huge <laughs> on it now you know so you live long enough you, you watch these things no matter how elegant the you know proposed mechanism if the mm-hmm. outcome isn't there then it isn't there <laughs> 
you know, and yet that would would not go away. And mm-hmm. because there's money involved, right? It's it's unexpected. Oh, I can pop a couple of just amino acids. They're legal and get this growth hormone surge. Mm-hmm. Well, you're not going to look like Dorian Yates. I'm telling you now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I think that one failed the credibility test uh, to me. But again, most people, I don't think they have the mental faculty to necessarily understand what credibility is. Like, what is evidence? You know, like yeah. those kids I talked about. They don't. Word of mouth is okay for them. They don't realize to be credible, there's got to be multiple studies all in agreement. You know, and other papers just were not finding the same things as that Isidori group at all. You know, but that's not what's presented in the ads. You know, they cherry pick and then, I don't know. I don't yeah, my know. students get so tired of me asking them. I'm like, well, where is your data or your support for that? You know, I don't, I try not to say this is right or this is wrong. And then invariably it's, you know, well, and sometimes they'll produce, you know, an actual like that study, which is good, which means they're going out and looking for peer reviewed data and that type of thing, which is well above most websites. But then, like you said, Lonnie, it's like, how does that compare to the rest of the data? You know, the average person is one, not going to take the time to do that. And two, a lot of times just, you know, doesn't have the training of what to look for and how to find it in different areas and that type of thing. So they're you know, for better or worse, kind of have to rely on what they hear and you're, you're back to where we were before. So. Right. You know, and as we start to wind down here, I will say some good science can be done with this principle in mind. Um, let me give an example. And again, I'm biased because this is the, something I'm spending a lot of time in the lab doing right now. But um, if you take the idea that caffeine may help with plyometric work and speed work more than regular kinds of caffeine use. I mean, if you go down this list, the simple and unexpected statement is, are we using caffeine wrong? Well, that's surprising, right? Because people are like, oh, well, mm-hmm. I don't know. I use caffeine. It seems to work for me. What could be wrong? You know, and then, of course, suggest that maybe this is actually better instead of getting a 10% boost uh, in fatigue reduction or something like that. You can actually get a 30 or 40 or 50% boost doing your on your speed work days, you mm-hmm. know. And so that's concrete too because then they can go try it. You know, they yeah. can be like, "Wow, I really, you know, I feel pretty wired. Uh, I'm really moving that bar fast. It's increasingly credible because you can find literature, not just the the studies that we're presenting, but even other literature in animals and that sort of thing. So it's a it's a credible notion too, right, that caffeine is going to help ignite your nervous system. Uh, and it's certainly emotional, and you can tell stories about it too. I mean, I wrote that article earlier this year for T Nation. I hadn't written anything for those guys in quite some time, but I was fascinated by you know, I, I used um, an energy drink in that situation instead of coffee. Uh, but there is sort of that emotional connection when you tell a story, you mm. know. And, uh, you know, the story is about how I was trying to tease apart. Is this just mental? Am I just feeling wired, but I'm not really performing better? Am I really moving the bar faster? You know, and there was sort of a personal tale with all of that, too. So, and I, maybe just maybe what will come out of this is something good that, hey, this is a a novel way. You know, if you're going to limit your caffeine use, and I would suggest anybody not go hog wild on caffeine all the time, maybe speed days, lighter power type days might be better than just trying to get a higher one rep max or delay fatigue. You know, so, yeah, hopefully there's some good ways to use this whole sticky science story, I guess. 
And it always seems like people want to know what they're doing wrong, right? So if you test newsletter titles or ad copy or whatever, like you said, the are you using caffeine wrong? It'll probably be pretty good, right? Because it, it's like, oh, am I really? Whoa. People want to know sort of intuitively what are they doing wrong or never eat these foods or that type of thing. And I know we all get sometimes kind of annoyed by because they show up everywhere, but reason they show up everywhere is because they work <laughs> you know yeah so. well it's that unexpected yeah. you know like like that book eat this not that you know yeah. i mean do i really think we're using caffeine wrong do i really think you should eat this not that Nah, no not really i mean scientists are always full of the caveats well only in this situation mm-hmm. and we always delimit everything you know and but that's not how people remember things you know they want mm-hmm. to remember eat this not that or oh my god i'm using caffeine wrong and although you know that's simplified to the point that technically it's erroneous but that's how ideas get spread i think they've got to be simple like that mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I know, Phil, you're feeling down, and, uh, <laughs> and I got a lot yeah, of papers to grade. Also. You know, talk about some of these ideas. Uh, man, I, I, basic nutrition classes, all students have to sort of do these projects where they analyze their own diets, you know, and that's it's just always eye-opening. It creates an enormous amount of work for me, but yeah. some of their – some of the ideas that come out and, you know, some of the really poor diet trends, it's interesting to see that firsthand, right? Because that's data. I mean, you know, you're actually sampling what, what these college students are eating and stuff. And some of their beliefs and some of their eating is um, – it's really eye-opening to see that firsthand. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean I yeah, want to go grade these, though. <laughs> nutrition, it just finds like you – as much as I spend a lot of time learning on the – more of the physiology side and, you know, this interaction and this fat interaction, all that kind of stuff. It, to me in practice, it comes down to almost all psychology and neurobiology, right? Cause most people know what's, you know, what foods are better and not, but the amount of just cornball wacky ideas people come up with for their own nutrition, it's just it's mind boggling. <laughs> mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. And it follows that acronym. So it sticks, you know, I don't know. Yeah. And it, it's hard to, to, get out of them and you know i'm not that different than anyone else i mean for years i thought intermittent fasting you know so not eating for a longer period for part of one day a week was the most insane stupidest thing i've ever heard of in my entire life and after a while and like for the last five years i'm like wow that's actually very useful and it's not horrible (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it took me about a year and a half to change my ideas on that so it's yeah it's Something everyone, I think, can can fall into for sure. It's just, I think a lot of it's just an awareness thing, right? So now I always try to ask myself, you know, why am I doing this? You know, is there data? And even when there is a lot of data, it's unrealistic to expect ourselves or other people to just change 180 degrees overnight. You know, it just doesn't happen. It's a slower process. Right. Just like you're talking about with uh, Olympic lifts or whatnot. Yep. Instead of motor pathways, it's just, you know, neural pathways in your brain you've got to sort of wipe your slate clean and that yeah you don't restructure those neurons overnight you know nope it's a slow process and you you know not to be too technical but you have to normally associate them with something else right it's like if you go all the way back to habit if you've ever you know seen anyone who's you know quit say alcohol or you know even cigarettes 
it's much easier to replace that with something else, right? So if you stand outside, a, I had to pick someone up at a, a building one night. I'm like, wow, there's a, a lot of people coming out drinking coffee and smoking at like 9 o'clock at night. And it was uh, Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Mm. Oh. And if you think about it, you're like, yeah, cigarettes and coffee is probably not nearly as bad as drinking all the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But it's easier to exchange one for another instead of just trying to extinguish one entirely on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good tip. All right, fellas. Well, good stuff. Yeah. Until next week, everyone. Until next week. Thanks a lot. All right. Tip. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.